Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. We're in a series on judges called Flawed People and Wholehearted Worship. Flawed People and Wholehearted Worship. And last week we talked a little bit about how um, people are often half-hearted with God. Do you remember we used that illustration from the movie, He's Just Not That Into You? And how at times, if we're honest, we're just not that into God. Uh, this week goes a little bit deeper. In, in the book of Judges, there's actually two introductions. And the second introduction is this week. It's the latter part of chapter two. And, and, and this week, this passage acts a little bit like a black box. Now, if you know what a black box is, it's not even black, it's actually orange. Uh, but a, a black box is an orange box that is put on a commercial airliner and it records all the conversations that the pilots have with the tower and it records all the movements of the plane and the speed and what buttons were pressed when. And the reason it's recorded is because if something happens and the plane wrecks, it's all in this orange box that we call a black box. And it's thought to be indestructible. And so if something bad happens, the recovery team goes and finds this, and they can figure out why the plane wrecked. The passage we're looking at today is a little bit like a black box for us in the book of Judges. We're going to see that the people of Israel are going to crash and burn. They're going to wreck. And as we go through this second introduction, this section of Judges tells us why the wreck happened. And as we look at why the wreck happened, we'll know more about how we get into wrecks in our own lives. Verse six, previously, when Joshua had sent the people away, the Israelites had gone to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the great works he had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance, that's the promised land, in timnath Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up that did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord and the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They angered the Lord for they abandoned him and worshiped Baal and the Ashtoreths. The Lord's anger burned against Israel and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them and they could no longer resist their enemies. And whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of the marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. 
they quickly turned away from the way, they turned from the way of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their ancestors did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and bow in worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. The Lord's anger burned against them, and he declared, because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their ancestors and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test Israel and to see whether or not they would keep the Lord's way by walking in it as their ancestors had. The Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not drive them over. He did not drive them over to Joshua, did not hand them over to Joshua. The word of God. Some song lyrics, see if you know who the artist is. You may be rich or you may be poor. You may be blind or lame. You may be living in another country under another name, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride, a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress. You may be somebody's heir, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Any children of the 60s in the room that know who that is? Bob Dylan, you gotta serve somebody. Uh, Dylan's lyrics are really saying that we all worship. People tend to use the word worship in a religious context, but what Dylan's saying is everybody serves something. Everybody has a direction that they're heading. Everybody worships. We all have this reference point in our life, and it might be conscious, more than times, it's unconscious. It's kind of like a default setting in our lives that, that sort of pulls us in a direction that we might not even know we are going. For some of us, it's comfort. I am heading towards a life of comfort. For others, for others of us, our default settings are achievement. I am heading toward success. That's what my life is about. Others of us, might, it might be influence. There's something in me that just draws me to be an influencer over as many people as possible. Others of us, it's peace. I just gotta get some peace in my life and I will do anything to get it. Now, sometimes we're, we're cognizant of that, but, but often that reference point acts as a default setting that we're unconscious about. But everyone has something that they serve. Everybody is heading in a direction everybody worships. And one of the reasons I like thinking about that is because it kind of gets under the skin of religious people. What I mean by that is religious people can go to church and they can do all the right things and they can try and follow all the commands, 
But when you start talking about worship, you're not talking about the exterior shell of a person. You're talking about what's in their heart and which direction they're heading. Like, are they doing all the right things or do they deeply love God? But, but, but here's the thing, it works for irreligious people too because a lot of times irreligious people say, I'm not into religion. But irreligious people get pretty religious about some things in their life because we're all wired for worship. We all have this default setting where we're heading towards something. Or we gotta serve somebody. And often when we serve somebody or something or some idea or something we don't want in our life, it can lead us not to life, but to destruction. It can lead us towards a wreck. Like, you know, if you, if you struggle with addiction, it's really pronounced for you. You're like, I get it. When my life centers around alcohol and drugs, I am in trouble because I will do anything to get it. It's not unconscious. It's right in my head all the time. But I think everybody's like that. We're just less conscious of it. D David Foster Wallace says this. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Listen to this. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in your life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. Have you ever been there or known someone that's been there where their God is money and it just destroys them or consumes them? What about this one? Wallace goes on to say, worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing and when you get old, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. If you worship your image, you die a million deaths as you get older because your reference point is your own beauty and your own sexual Alert, and you can see how when people worship the wrong things, it causes a wreck. You might have been there, you might currently be there, or you might see someone heading that way. And the reason that we wreck is your reference point wrecks you because it has to do with worship. You think about a plane going in a direction, but having the wrong reference point. That is a terrible tragedy, incredibly dangerous. That's why we need the black box, right? That's why we need the orange box. What went wrong? Was it the fact that they had a reference point that was off? Was it the fact that they lost sight of something or they didn't listen to a warning light or something like that? What was the reason? Um, wrecks happen because of worship, because our reference point for life is what we worship. A reference point for life is what we worship. And as we look at Israel, we'll see that the wreck happens because of their reference point, because of their worship, because they lost sight of something, because they didn't hear the warning lights, because they didn't understand what direction they were going. And oftentimes we wreck for the very same reasons. What went wrong? Well, first of all, we learn that we wreck when we lose sight of God's gospel. We wreck when we lose sight of the good news of the gospel. 
In verse 7, it says that the people who had moved into the land, they worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. So the first generation in the land is worshiping, and it tells us why. They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. They had seen what had happened when God had saved them from Egypt, or they'd heard the stories about God's mighty power saving them from slavery in Egypt. And, and they'd heard the stories, or they'd been there when, when Moses had gone up on Mount Sinai and, and seen the glory of the Lord and brought down the tablets of the law where God had shared with his people, this is how life works. They, they'd been there, or they heard about that. They, they'd been there when they'd come into the promised land, and they'd come up against a city named Jericho with mighty walls. And God brought that city to ruin by them just walking around and shouting. And then they'd see Joshua lead them into the land. And, and they'd seen the work of the Lord. But then a new generation came after them. In verse 10, the latter part of verse 10, it says, after them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Now, when it says they didn't know the Lord, I don't think that means they had no idea who he was. The, the word know is much more relational than it is factual. And so they knew about the Lord. They probably celebrated Passover with their family. But what the author is trying to tell us is God and their relationship with him and his salvation on their behalf just didn't do it for them. They valued it less than the generation before them. The salvation had lost its value to them. And God's presence, it just wasn't that meaningful. And then we see what happens in the next verses to this generation. In verses 11 and 12, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who, the authors reminded us, who had brought them out of Egypt. This is what he did for them, and they've forgotten what he's done for them. They've lost sight of God's salvation. And that causes a wreck. Because what becomes more meaningful to them is the culture around them and keeping up with what's the norm in the new land that they're in rather than bringing God's norm into that land. Sometimes you and I lose sight of the value of the gospel. Sometimes you and I forget how meaningful and significant it is what Jesus has done for us. I mean, when you're first saved, man, it's like, what just happened, right? Your life gets totally changed and you wanna tell everybody. But then as life goes on and you kind of realize that it's really hard to be a Christian and it's really hard to keep your passion for the Lord uh, your reference point begins to change, right? Like you can forget everything that God has done for you and all the love and all the beauty and all the righteousness that we see in the gospel of Jesus. And we can get to a point where we care more about things that our culture cares about. And then when we look at the gospel and what God's done for us, we go, you know what? It's just not really working for me right now. It's not really what I need. I mean, I know I have everything in Christ, but what I really need is fill in the blank. Have you ever gotten there? I've gotten there. I mean, Jesus saved a sinner like me, praise God. But what I really value 
It's not what Jesus has done for me, but fill in the blank. And oftentimes it's, it's good things, right? It's good things that we fill in the blank, but we lose sight of the gospel because we make those good things into idols or ultimate things. And what's strange is this drifting, this losing sight of God's work, it, it happens in just a generation. In 10b, it tells us that the second generation was the one who just didn't know what God had done. They didn't know who God was, and they didn't, they didn't know what God had done. And you kind of go, well, who, who's at fault here? Um, the text doesn't really tell us. It could be that the first generation faithfully followed the Lord, but they forgot to pass that on to the next generation. Or it could just be that that next generation just said, we're not going to follow the Lord. We don't really care. Uh, but it should give us pause to think about where we are as different generations in one church. I mean, I know we have silent generation and we have boomers and we have Gen X and we have millennials and we have, we have Gen Z and we read all the stories about the conflict between millennials and boomers and, you know, not getting each other. And that's all, that's all real. Um, but I think we really do need each other because oftentimes when it comes to following the Lord, each generation has huge blind spots, huge blind spots when it comes to making something more important than the gospel or leaving something out of the gospel. And really, another generation is kind of the only one that can see it. But we have to be careful not to be self-righteous with each other because every generation has their blind spots. Every generation has their things that they can't see. For instance, does a generation worship money or pleasure or freedom? We have to be willing to realign our hearts when we lose sight of God's salvation and how important it is. You know, I think even as I'm thinking about being a parent, some things that I have to wrestle with as I parent my kids, you know, as they grow up, <clears throat> they will probably know my idols better than I do. They'll probably see them more clearly than I do now. That's a little scary for me, but, but it also is hopeful because all of us have idols, right? All of us have things that we lose sight of the gospel. We say the gospel is not as important. What I really value is this, but, but I hope that I can give kid, my kids access to my repentance. In other words, when I lose sight of the gospel, I hope that I can tell them that or they can tell me that and we can correct it together. Um, what would the generational drifts look like if we parented that way, or if we talked openly about the differences in our idols in the church, I mean, I think that would really help us not lose sight of the gospel. We did it together. Because that's what will wreck us. We wreck when we lose sight of the gospel, but also we wreck when we don't hear God's guidance. In verse 13, it says they abandoned God and worshiped Baal and the asterisk. And then in, in verse 17, it says they did not listen to their judges. Now remember, judges aren't people in a courtroom and they're not self-righteous people. They're military leaders that we're gonna study the whole rest of the book. And what the author's telling us here is those were God's people he put in charge to lead them, but they didn't listen. Instead, it's a strong word, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their ancestors, and here's what that meant, 
Their ancestors walked in obedience to the Lord's commands, but they did not do as their ancestors did. We wreck when we don't hear God's guidance. This verse is a little bit like those warning alarms in the airplane that says, you're off course, you're off course, you're off course. When the computer speaks to the pilot, and the pilot has an an obligation to listen. These verses say Israel didn't listen to the warning lights. They didn't listen to God's guidance. They were so tuned in to something else. They were so tuned in to the culture that they lived in that it's almost like they couldn't hear what God's judges were saying. That resonates with me because the culture is so loud. Our culture is so loud. We all have access to so much culture from our phone, right? So many voices that we hear every day. And we live in a society uh, where everything is relative. Uh, You do you. Um, You're the God. You can pick whatever you want to do. And and in our society, it's actually okay to follow Jesus as long as Jesus can coexist with other idols. But once you start saying Jesus is king over everything, that doesn't go over so well. Well, that's the exact same thing that was the Israelites were facing. They wanted God to coexist with Baal. They wanted God to coexist with the idols of the land because those were the gods that kind of did it for him. But God says, listen, when you do that, when you put another God on the throne where I'm, where I'm supposed to sit, you are prostituting yourself. You're like, whoa, temperature just went up in the room. That's a strong word. Because when we think about prostitution, we think about fully giving yourself over to someone else who does not care about you. And that's exactly the vibe that God wants them to get from that word. Now you might say, well, wait wait a minute, that's a strong word. God loves me and like following Jesus, that's about relationship, John, not religion. Exactly. That's exactly the point. That, That God loves us so much that he will not let us give ourselves over to something that does not love us and nothing loves us like he does. Because ultimately, any idol that we pursue, God says no to because it will destroy us. David Foster Wallace goes on and he says, if you worship power, you'll live your life feeling weak and afraid and you will never you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. You ever look at someone who's really powerful and like in control and actually say, I bet they're actually terrified of life. That's what he's saying. You worship your intellect. You worship being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on the warning lights are going on for Israel. That if they give themselves over to these idols, if they do not hear God's guidance, they will destroy themselves. Where are we giving ourselves over to idols? Uh, one, 
One pastor said, just look through your Bible at all the parts that you haven't underlined. That's a good start, right? Are we overlooking places in our Bible about justice? Are we skipping over parts about sexuality or generosity or power? Uh, that's a good place to start if you think that you're not listening to God's commands. Uh, maybe another way to diagnose where the idols are in your heart, Tim Keller says this, he says, am I willing to hear whatever God says? Am I willing to do whatever God guides? Am I willing to accept whatever God sends? If you're like me, your mind like went immediately to one thing, and that's it. That's the thing. That's the place where you might have an idol and that causes you not to listen to God's guidance, not to listen to the emergency warning lights. We wreck when we don't hear God's guidance. But ultimately, and probably most importantly, we wreck when we don't find our way to God's grace. We wreck when we don't find our way to God's grace. And we could flip that and say, your safest place is in the middle of God's grace. A lot of people think that God is, even as they read the Old Testament, that God is like this vindictive, sort of juvenile, uncontrollable being who has temper tantrums all the time. And, and we actually kind of operate like he's like that in our life. Have you ever been in a place where you're like, I've been bad, so God is doing this to me? Like I did some really bad stuff and then I got in a car wreck. And so there it is, you know, God was vindictive with me. Um, <clears throat> but that's not really the way God works. I mean, we could look at this passage and kind of guess that that's how God works. Like Israel disobeys and then God throws a temper tantrum and gets really mad and vindictive and immature and that's what's going on. But then, but then once they obey, like he's like, okay, it's all good. Like, let's all relax. But then it happens again and he gets vindictive and immature. Um, first of all, let me tell you this. If that's your view of God, you'll never worship him. Because you'll do the bare minimum required to pass for obedience. That's actually religion. It's not gospel Christianity. But then secondly, let's look a little bit deeper at God's anger. Several times it says that God is angry. Like that's unavoidable. God sees their idolatry, their sin, and he's angry. But his anger comes out of his love. His anger comes from the place where he says, these are my people. And to see them prostituting themselves after gods and the gods of people that aren't even alive, how can I let them do that? But at the same time, he does. In his anger, he lets them pursue these idols. We talked about last week how sometimes we think that God's anger is like him coming into a, a, base, uh, a china shop with a baseball bat, right? And just wrecking everything. But a lot of times what God does in his anger and judgment is he just lets people go the way that their rebellious heart wants to go. And what we see in this passage is that God is giving them over to the very people whose gods they choose to serve. 
In other words, they're like, we want the gods of those people over there. We want those gods. We want those gods. And finally, God says, go. See what that's like. I love you. I hope you come back. God is saying, if you don't want me, I'll give you over to what you do want. It's interesting as we think about our own lives, because so often you and I think that when something bad happens in our life, it's like God's vindictiveness. But maybe we should stop and ask if it's just our foolishness. Uh, David M. Howard says, it's blindness caused by sin that makes us think the Lord has forsaken us when in our sin we have forsaken the Lord. Has there been a wreck in your life recently? Have you ever been through a wreck? I've been through several wrecks, right? Both car wrecks and life wrecks. Um, now, I wanna be careful with this, but I, I wanna ask you to think, can you trace your rebellion to that wreck? Like, like if you were to open up the black box and get all the information and all the directions and all the choices that you made, like, would you see any uh, association between that wreck in your life and your rebellion? Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying like, if you go out and you stub your toe and you say a swear word and then you get in a car wreck on the way home, you're like, oh, I knew it, like God got me. That's not what we're talking about at all. That reveals more about our own hearts than it does about God's gracious character. And if you've been abused by someone else, that's not what I'm talking at at all. That's not on you, that's on them and their sin. But, but can you ask yourself the question, where have I not been willing to listen to God? And then if I'm honest about that, did any wreck happen because of that? Maybe a major wreck, but maybe a minor wreck. I find times when I will spend the day angry. You ever have one of those days you wake up out of bed and you're like, mm, it's just not fair. And then you spend the whole day angry, the whole day angry, and you wreck all along the way. The way that you treat people, what you think is fair. We have many wrecks and we have big wrecks, but, but can you identify an area where maybe God is calling you to look inside that black box at what happens? What, what I'm trying to say is when we rebel against God, there are consequences. I think about my own life. There was a season in my life where when I went to college and what I was worshiping was freedom. I was ready. My parents are out of town this weekend, so I can tell the story. Um, and I went wild. <laughs> I went to college and I, and I went wild. I did what I wanted. I had fun. But if I'm honest, as I look at that time, it wasn't just freedom and fun. It was a lot of pain. It was a lot of shame. It was a lot of hurt that I caused other people. It was episodes with the police. It was getting kicked out of things. It was stealing things. And it was just embarrassment. And I could look at that time and be like, oh, you know, it's just this situation, but it was me. It was me, my worship, my reference point cause me to wreck. But here's the amazing thing about God, is however bad you've wrecked, there is always grace. There is always grace for sinners who come back to God. You know, even here in this passage, we see the cycle continues where 
Israel rebels against God and then he sends people to fight against them, to get them to see they need God. And then they cry out in mercy and say, or for mercy and say, God, save us. And he does over and over and over again. God steps in with his grace and mercy and saves them. Every time he raises up a judge, it represents his unrelenting grace, his innumerable portions of mercy, his unlimited love towards people who don't get it, towards people who don't deserve it, towards people who don't earn it, towards people who can't repay it, towards people who don't, uh, don't recall it, and people who do it again. God's grace is infinite. And so when we look at this story or we look at this life that we live and we think about the vindictiveness of God, it's really more about our own posture towards God than it is who God really is. God's grace through Jesus Christ is for you. Even when you fully don't get it, you don't deserve it, you can't earn it, you're not able to pay it back, you don't remember it, and you make promises not to do it again, but you do. God's grace is for you. And when you begin to understand that, your heart fills with worship. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us ungodly people. God didn't look at us and see potential. He didn't look at us and say, well, they'll owe me. He looked at us and saw people who don't get it and can't earn it and don't deserve it. But in his great love, he moved towards broken sinners like you and like me. Maybe you're in a wreck. Maybe you're heading towards a wreck. Or maybe you're heading tomorrow into a mini wreck. We're all there. Look to Jesus Christ. He is a reference point in the midst of the mess. Rest in the good news. Turn to him. And as your life is a mess, Obey what he says. Listen to his guidance and find your way to his grace over and over again. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.